Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This great Thursday morning. You know, I just had my first COVID shot yesterday. I had put it off while I was having some other medical issues completed, and I got my first COVID shot, and I'm hoping that you're getting yours. COVID has uncovered, like, racism in America, what has happened to African Americans and Latinx and Native Americans. It really has uncovered the political, economic, health injustices all over. And today... We have Elizabeth Ryder, who we're going to talk about some of those injustices. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing good. I have both my shots. (laughs) Fantastic. Very liberating. Very liberating, you know. Very liberating. And that's what we would like for everybody to get their shots and everybody to perhaps increase their life their life experiences to be liberated, that freedom, total freedom. So Dr. Elizabeth Ryder, come, tell us a little bit about uh, how, what kind of doctor do you get? What's your educational background like? Uh, well, let's see. I have my BA, MA, and PhD from UCLA, and it was all in anthropology and specifically linguistic anthropology. Uh, and I what, what kind of anthropology? Linguistic anthropology, which means, you know, studying languages. And so I, I studied, um, uh, for my master's, I did Native American languages. And then for my doctorate, I went to Papua New Guinea to do my field research. Native American languages and Papua New Guinea to do your field research for your doctorate. And I guess you learn, when you say anthropology, that's like, I think it's studying people, the history of people. Yes, and absolutely. you're studying the history of people through their word, through their voice, through their languages. Mm-hmm. Is that so, right? The language is very important in terms of cultural identity. And so the, especially the work with Native American communities, it's about uh, preserving their language and their culture and their sense of identity. Speaking, you know, a, a, an indigenous language is very much part of, um, you know, preserving their unique identity and um, culture. Did you learn the languages or just study them? Well, you know, many linguists are polyglots, which means they speak many languages, but you don't have to be because when you study the structure of a language, you can, you know, uh, just, you know, ask the questions that are needed for the uh, person to, you know, tell you what they need to tell you. And um, you don't have to actually become fluent in the language. You learn a lot about it and you learn, you know, many words and whatnot, but Becoming fluent in language really requires being immersed in the community for a period of time. And uh, linguists uh, sometimes don't do that. That's fascinating to me because I had trouble with English. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty cool in Ebonics. And then I tried to learn Spanish. I lived five years in Puerto Rico. 
And there, they most people spoke English, and it was very hard to practice it, like getting that immersed that you're talking about. But I did dream in it one night, so I felt like I could get that language if I studied it more. But I did not learn the language, and I'm always at awe at people that either can speak more than one language, but definitely that understands languages. I'm curious, what are some of the kinds of things you learn about a culture through studying their language? can't even express in the, uh, a different language that are expressed, you know, uh, idioms and whatnot. You know, in, for an example, I'm fluent in a language from Papua New Guinea, the most widely spoken language in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, one of their idioms, which I always appreciated, was they'd say, Pokpokisia. Uh, and that means, okay. if you, Pokpokis. It's a uh, Creole or a pigeon, which uh, technically it started as a pigeon, but now it's um, a fully-fledged language. It's called Pokpizin. And um, bookies is when you they make the, they'll make a, um, a square with their fingers in it. Like when you talk around a topic, you're speaking uh, indirectly to a subject, talking all the way around it. And uh, but they have this expression, bookies, talk around the topic indirectly. Yes. So um, with with that square, they're wanting you to get to the subject matter. You think that is that what but, they're doing there? They're talking all the way around it, not, you know, talking to it directly. And so you have to listen carefully to what they're saying. You know, how uh, people talk around the topic and, um, and uh, they're leading you to um, an, un- an understanding, but they're not just going directly to it. It's just, it's just you know, interesting expressions um, and, you know, vocabulary that, uh, that just doesn't exist in the other language. So all of your degrees are at UCLA, UCLA in Los Angeles, so University of California, Los Angeles. I think of them as their, you know, their football and basketball. How was it going to school there? Uh, well, it's a beautiful campus and a wonderful university and very, you know, one of the top ten universities in the country. So I very much appreciate my opportunity there. But the reason why I stayed in Los Angeles is because I was a business owner my first husband and I, you know, owned an auto repair business, and I was an auto mechanic from the time that I graduated high school, practically, or soon after, uh, you know, for seven years. And when I started uh, attending the university, you know, I was um, I was an auto mechanic. <laughs> you were a grease monkey, a grease monkey, a woman. My my life does not fit on one page. <laughs> <laughs> So can I bring my car up and get you to fix it now? Is that what? You're... <laughs> well, yeah, cars have changed quite a bit. We had a specialization of restoring British sports cars because he had been a a, uh, a race car driver and had raced uh, Jaguars, Indies, and CRs and, and whatnot, um, the old school ones. And uh, we had a specialization in that. And I can still set up a Jag head and um, you know rewire Lucas Electric and. Uh, but, the, you know, the cars have changed quite a bit then. Now they're all computerized and smog um, equipment and whatnot. So I don't dabble any longer in the newer cars. Okay. I had an MG Midget once. Um, <laughs> but that's a, Okay, in the British cars. That is fascinating that already UCLA, undergrad, master's, and a doctorate, in anthropology, particularly linguistic anthropology, studying language and getting the structure of a, of a community, of a group of folks, Native American and Papua New Guinea, master's and doctorate. Okay, what did you 
What did you get out of the study of Native American language? Uh, well, you know, what I was pursuing is that I, um, you know, I believe that becoming an anthropologist would be equivalent to becoming a, an advocate for indigenous peoples. And um, unfortunately, it's not always the case, but that was my objective, was to, you know, advocate on behalf of um, indigenous peoples. And that was my purpose in, in following anthropology. Were you I, able to you know, do that? I've grown up during the civil rights movement and, you know, advocacy and, and defending social justice issues were part of my DNA by that time. I had become a social justice advocate uh, and at, an activist um, the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I was approximately maybe between 10 and 15 years old. Let's see, what year was that when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated? I want to say 63, but my memory is not the best in the world. Between 63 and 66, and, uh, you know, I was born in 53, so I was, um, you know, barely a teenager. Uh, but, you know, my entire, uh, uh, you know, life had been a witness to the civil rights movement. Uh, and, you know, you, when you agree with something, you're watching it on television, you're cheering it on, saying, this is right, yes, and, and seeing people marching in the streets, it's so inspirational, and, you know, you're, you're glad that they, the world is going to be changing and then he was assassinated, and, uh, you know, the light bulb went on, which is that, you know, I can't just stand in the sidelines. I've got to do something. So that is how I became a, an activist. So Dr. King uh, was assassinated April 4th, 1968. 63 was in March on Washington, so I got that mixed up. Okay. Well, and that's also um, when Kennedy was assassinated in 63. Okay. So you were you were 15 and 68. Right. Uh, and, and I was 21. Right. And, okay. you know, I came from, uh, a, you know, a white middle class, lower middle class, middle class family. That, and my parents were conservative uh, and racist. But, you know, this watching this uh, happen un- unfold in my lifetime uh, allowed me, it, it, it gave me the strength to um, oppose that. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> So did you grow up in Los Angeles? Yes, that's, I did. That's home? Born and raised in Los Angeles. White middle class, racist parents, and you went into anthropology to study about indigenous folks, Native Americans, so you could advocate for them. Right. That in is. my family, in many uh, you know white uh, settler uh, families, you have a mythology that there's some Native American uh, heritage. Uh, it's not always true. Uh, people, you know, have mythologies in their family. They have stories being told. But the story was told in my family that my mother's mother was part Native American, which turns out she was not. But her great-grandfather had purchased land with a Choctaw land script. And so there was actually a, um involvement somehow in, in the family. So I spent some time researching that because I was interested. But that is the source of my fascination with indigenous communities. And, you know, that translated after you know, being witness to the civil rights movement that, you know, these people were also oppressed. I mean, our society is based on stolen land and stolen labor and, um, you know, and trying to set that right again has been has defined my, I guess, my entire life. <laughs> stolen land and stolen labor. And stolen land is particularly from Native Americans. And they try to put Native Americans in the 
plantations. They wouldn't work, couldn't work, and then they went out and stole Africans and brought in. So that's the stolen labor with with slavery. And uh, uh, you know, the indigenous communities, you know, had their own economy. They didn't need to work for land uh, plantations, so they couldn't get Native Americans to work. You know, on the uh, slave plantation economies that did, did develop. And this also happened in the Pacific. When I did my dissertation in Papua New Guinea, they also tried to get indigenous peoples to work in their plantations, and they just refused. And they created all sorts of devices to try to get them to work on these uh, plantations, but they didn't need to because they had their own economy, their indigenous economy. And so that's when they turned and, uh, to the slave trade in Africa, because when you're attempting to oppress people, this, you know, dislocating them is part of the formula. So disconnecting them from their land, disconnecting them from their social relationships, and disconnecting them from their spiritual relationship to the land as well. So, Dr. Elizabeth Ryder, we are going to take our first break here. And so far, you just have a fascinating history with study of linguistic anthropology at UCLA, the doctorate, your master's, your undergraduate degree, all at UCLA. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about these oppressed people around the world that you have studied, and particularly get into some of the co-ops and the benefits that co-ops have for these people. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Information is power. That's why WL makes a great partner. We've been on the air now for seven and a half years, giving you information about co-ops. And you only get the power from information if you go out and use it. And we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Ryder today about the knowledge that she has gotten through her life study of anthropology, linguistic anthropology at UCLA. And when we just left, she was talking about how how a group of people try to oppress another group of people. And what you were saying, Dr. Ryder, was they want to move them away from where they live, take them away from their religion, from their people, from their language, and just get them immersed in whatever they want, just try to eradicate their past. Um, my mentor at UCLA was a couple, um, Leo Cooper and uh, Silva Cooper, and Leo Cooper taught about genocide. He had uh, actually fought against the, he was from South Africa, had fought against the Nazis in uh, Europe, and then came back to witness apartheid in South Africa. And he wrote numerous books about uh, genocide, and um, he documented the fact that there's a, there's a usual pattern, that they identify people, they make them wear some sort of emblem, you know, in the case of the Holocaust, it was a, a star, but in the case of, you know, Cambodia, they put a, a certain colored scarf around their neck, and they marched them across, you know, the country, they did that in, um, in the Armenian genocide, they, they dispossessed, they relocate them so they, they're uh, away from their social and economic relationships. And then, you know, of course, when in the case of genocide, they murder them. But, um, uh, you know, it's a, it, these are common features. So you dispossess them of their social relationships, of their economic relationships. And finally, by moving them away from their land, you're dispossessing them of their spiritual relationship with the land. And that's the way that you can control people. Wow. I, I, I get sick to the stomach whenever we talk about this, particularly when we go back and look at slavery in the U.S. and the taking of the land from Native Americans, the trail of tears and relocating them and murdering and raping and stealing from this group of people. 
with America never apologizing and never dealing with it. And that's sort of, I don't know what the original sin is, whether it's slavery or how they, they, they killed off and took the land from natives, but it's all right there and together to me of, of just really oppressing people. What was that like studying for you as a young person particularly? Uh, how did that impact you? You got the murder of Dr. King, which made you want to do activism. It, it sort of pushed that you were 15 years old or so. How was that like studying that? It seems painful, well, you know, is what I'm getting. Well, you know, you say to yourself, this is just wrong. You've got to do something. You know, you've got to let people know. And so, you know, as um, I you know, spent many years becoming a university, you know, lecturer and getting my doctorate finished. And the objective, of course, of that was to be able to teach young people the truth and um, the truth about uh, genocide, the truth about indigenous peoples, the truth about slavery, the, you know, the truth about racism. I mean, you want to be able to communicate to people so that I had this idea in my mind when I was 15 that um, all that had to happen to, to eradicate racism was that my grandparents' generation would die and then racism would be gone. But guess what? <laughs> that they breed new racists all the time, and they do it, you know, by teaching young people to be racist. But if you can, you know, uh, reach in there, and, you know, before they're completely on board on that, and give them the truth, then you have a chance to eradicate these things. They breed new races all of the time. I, 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 yes, I really had that. I, I wondered growing up in West Virginia and dealing with racism, being an African American, integrating schools in 1955, uh, third grade for me, being called the N word almost every day on the playground, particularly. But it, it's just like I wondered what happened to racism. All of those racists, you know after King's murder and after all of these things, and it looked like they just closeted that stuff. They were still breeding races, <laughs> okay? Right. And, and the last president was able to bring that back out and made it so that people can talk out in the politically correct to talk about their racist views, and that's what's happening now. Um, and we're going to talk about more about that later on. I had a very sort of intimate view of these things because my daughter being half Papua New Guinea and I got married in Papua New Guinea and, and I had my daughter. And so I had her in a school after he passed away of liver cancer. We moved back to the United States and I had her in just some of the best schools, anti-bias curriculum at a school um, on campus at UCLA when I was finishing my doctorate. And, you know, I thought it would be the best environment. And yet, you know, children would come to school and say things like, oh, your dad's a cannibal. Now, that's racism. So I, you know, <laughs> and uh, they, you know, mispronounce her name to to become the N-word, you know. Her name was Nishimoro, which means uh, blue water in the language, the Kuman language of the highlands of Papua New Guinea in Sindhu province, uh, because people are namesakes in Papua New Guinea. So, uh, in at least in that cultural group. And, you know, I'd have to go to the principal and complain about these things. And the principal would say, oh, you know, that's just kids being kids. And I'm like, no, this is racism. We need to address this. And so, you know, from a white person's point of view, being, you know, having to uh, an intimate sort of experience of it is, is quite a lesson. You know, if you experience it every day, and I salute you, I'm so sorry. But, um, you know, getting a white person to experience what it means is, you know, 
probably the trick. You know, that's what we need to do yes. in order to, to eradicate racism. So what was your daughter's name? Can you say that Nish again? I didn't Moro. catch it. Nish Moro. Uh, and that means Nish means water and Moro means blue. And as a one name, it means blue water, but it also means blue horizon. But the main thing is that she was namesaked after someone uh, that creates a godparent relationship and um, for an entire lifetime. So, yeah, it's a tradition, a cultural tradition of the Kuman-speaking society in the Central Highlands of Papua New Guinea. Which is so that seems similar to similar to Native American names. They they mm-hmm. take the names off of what always starts the environment, whether you're sky or mountain or something. However, you were born, but something that relates uh, has meaning to the name as uh, Nish Moro, and so Nish Moro became Nikki. Yeah, is that well, right? You know, when she got to school in the United States, I mean, she would say, uh, people would say, "How do you pronounce your name?" Say Nikki. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because she couldn't pronounce it even. So, <laughs> so and her last name is a, is a type of tree. I got that from her grandfather, Okuk. Okay. So you have experienced racism, particularly with the death of Martin Luther King at an early age, and then you married an African man. He's Papua New Guinean. He's a Papua New Guinean political leader in in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and you know, educated. Uh, he was an independence leader. Um, his name was Yambaki Okuk, and Yambaki means Yellow Bird Paradise, which is on um, the national flag of Papua New Guinea. He's one of the key independence leaders. So you were surrounded by the Yellow Bird of Paradise and blue water. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yellow Bird of Paradise and Blue Water. All right, so you, you've seen racism from afar through Martin Luther King on getting shot and all of the civil rights movement. You grew up with it. You saw racism in your home as a young person, and you believed that if your grandparents died off, then that would get rid of racism, but only to find out that they breed new races every year. So you wanted to tell the truth, so you said, okay, let me get my doctors and I can talk to you and train young people. How has that been for you, teaching? Uh, well, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, after the death of my husband, my, you know, being a, a widowed single mother, I taught for a while. But, um, you know, you, when you start, first start teaching, they, as a lecturer, they give you uh, one or two sections. You may or may not have enough sections to have health care and you know, I took on the responsibility of raising my daughter, and I needed economic security. So I decided I needed a better job than that, uh, with, and I went to work for the labor movement because, of course, that's one of the strongest organizations in the country for bringing about social justice, and I could get a, a job that had some economic security and health care for my family, myself. So we have something in common. I taught school um Originally, to keep from going to Vietnam, I, I, so I taught in Cleveland Middle School, and then I got a master's in math and taught in New York and then in San Diego. But I left it because I just couldn't make a living. I couldn't pay for me, let alone me and a family, with what teaching is. And that's sad because I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy watching a, a young person that where it clicks, where they finally, and I was teaching mathematics, and so all the time they didn't click. But once they clicked, that was the best kind of 
compensation, but it still wouldn't pay the bill. So yeah, I get that. I get that. So get you went to work, and that was my that was my thing. Or get your health care. At that time, that drove my life. You know, getting health care because you you can be financially ruined by not having health health insurance. So um, you know, labor unions are the strongest uh, force for getting everyone health care. That's what they do. They yes. get uh, benefits and wages and health care. So we're going to take our second break, and it's a great place to stop trying to get health care. And we're going to come back, and I want to talk to you more about your experience in the labor movement and what you wanted to accomplish in that in that world, being an activist now. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This program is brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And today we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Ryder. And, you know, she grew up in Los Angeles, went to school at UCLA, has studied linguistic anthropology, Grew up in a white, middle-class, racist home and took on to change the world. And she wanted to do that by the study of language. And we're going to talk more to her now about what she has been doing to change the world in her life. So where we left off, she she started working for the labor unions. So can you tell us about what you did with the labor unions and what do, you, what do you have as the purpose of labor unions? Uh, how, how are they helping those folks who have their land stolen and their labor stolen? That's the history of them. How does labor unions help? Well, you know, labor unions are when people come together to achieve a common goal, which is to achieve uh, greater economic security, to achieve, you know, the, uh, human rights, to achieve you know, all of the goals that they need in the, in the face of an economic system that attempts to deny them um, their human rights, their, their labor rights, their, their fair equity in the economy. And so, yes, uh, you know, that I would choose to, because it is one of the greatest forces in our society to change society. I wanted to um, be a part of that. They've been organizing for decades and decades, and and they have, you know, they're they're funded because they have membership and they pay membership dues, and they can achieve, uh, you know, so much. And so I I was had the privilege of working uh, with um, the Justice for Janitors campaign in Los Angeles, where we got universal health care for the janitors, uh, unionized janitors in Los Angeles by the year 2000, full family health. Then I had the privilege of working with the uh, Healthcare Action Campaign with SEIU, and um, we're organizing hospital workers. So, you know, as you can see with COVID, they were denied, um, you know, they didn't have adequate uh, protective gear or, you know, principles, uh, and many died. So people, you know, organized to uh, achieve the goals of getting health health and welfare, uh, health and safety standards. Uh, all of the things that have transformed our society, um, so many of them have, uh, you know, the outlawing child labor laws, you know, help, all these things are achieved by the labor movement because they've managed to come together, 
introduce into a pool and use that to um, to change those laws and change, you know, achieve laws that, that protect those rights. So my grandfather worked in the coal mines in West Virginia, and very yeah. big, heavy unionized. And yep. my father did not. He said he didn't want to go into mines. I didn't want to go into mines. He worked yeah. on the railroad with heavy union. So I worked mm-hmm. on a railroad a couple of summers while I went to Bluefield State College, very heavy unionized. And then I worked for nine months in an auto plant in, in Dearborn, Michigan, and I got a better sense of how the unions work. Because this uh, white overseer, they call him a supervisor, uh, but he treated folks on the line as if he was an overseer on the plantation, and he tried to get me. But the union, the guys, I was 18. The guys on the line, uh, older, they, they stopped that line. Said, no, you're not going to treat him like that. That was a huge sort of eye-opening for the power and the benefits of union, and I, I, I love union. I have not worked in one since 18, well, the two in the summer, uh, so maybe since 20. I have not worked in a unionized place where I was a member of the union, but I advocate for unions because of everything you just said, how labor can have a real voice of uh, how some of that profit can go to the benefit of the people that make the profit. <laughs> I come from a five-generation union family. So my my great grandfather was a police officer in Los Angeles, and his pension got my family through the uh, depression. Uh, my grandfather was uh, a oil and chemical worker. He came to this area uh, following the oil boom. Uh, my father was a state worker. He belonged to SAU 1000. Uh, myself, I've been a member of UPTI uh, at UCLA. Um, and, um, you know, asked me, and of course, SAU and, and also the IWW because they, I am a member of the IWW because it's such a, an enormous history of organizing, you know, those that uh, have the, the least say in our economy and the least uh, equity in our economy. And my daughter also carried, carried on the tra- tradition and worked, uh, you know, with, uh, with AFSCME also and um, briefly as an organizer. So, you know, it's a family tradition. And I'll, I'll put in there also that not all um, unions have, have over their entire history been anti-racist. There were episodes in the labor history where, you know, white workers attempted to keep black workers out of unions. So if you really know your labor history, you know that. Uh, but now uh, the labor movement is really a force behind anti-racism. And um, so proud of that work. So I just would like for you, you mentioned, I think, about three unions in there. Can you tell us what those unions, uh, who they represented real quickly? You gave the initials. OCAW, Oil and Chemical and Atomic Workers. Uh, They represent the oil workers, uh, so the refineries in Southern California as well as across the country. They have since gone out of existence, uh, but in uh, Los Angeles they've merged into the steel workers. So Steelworkers Local 675 is actually has inherited uh, the tradition of the OCAW. They've been um, affiliated with them. And, you know, you think Steelworkers are Steelworkers, but they represent the refinery workers in Los Angeles. Uh, a very strong union, very proud to work with them. They're an awesome union. Uh, let's see what other uh, UPTI, University Technical and Professional Employees. That's uh, the union at UCLA. There's five unions at UCLA, SEIU, and AFSCME, and TWA, and UPDI, and um, Q, I think. 
that uh, that uh, you know secure things like pensions and good working conditions and health and safety standards at uh, UCLA. Yeah, which other ones have I forgotten now? <laughs> okay. No, that, that's good. That's that's really good. Pensions, working conditions, health insurance, uh, different kinds of insurance, salary. Wages and benefits, yes. Yep. Wages and benefits. All right. So you you worked for 20 years or so in the union world? About 20 years, yeah, over 20 years. Over three decades, uh, the course of three decades, uh, the 90s for SEIU and since 2000 for AFSCME. And just retired. So there you have it. There's the benefits pension. <laughs> okay. You got a pension. You got the benefits. So are you retired? Are you stopped working? Yes, I am a re- I'm retired, but I've not stopped working in the sense that uh, I, I don't work for money, but now I just work. Uh, I work for um, in the, uh, the, co- the worker cooperative sector, and then I spend a lot of time doing child care for my daughter because under, and because of COVID, she's having to work from home, and child care has been a problem for those women still trying to participate in the economy. Many have had to stay home and take care of their children. So, so you're doing child care for your granddaughter. Yes. That's great work. Okay, I love that. Okay. So I just want to quickly tell people what a worker cooperative is. A worker cooperative, well, first, there are four types of co-ops. A worker co-op is where the employees own and control the business. So any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative if the employees owned it, the business and they control the business. Then you have the second type is a consumer cooperative, and that's it owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services. So that could be a housing co-op, that's your credit unions, that could be a food co-op. Now, a food co-op could be only controlled by the, the workers, a worker co-op, or it could be only controlled by the people that shop in the, in the business, the consumer. Dr. Ryder, there is a consumer co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, that's a health clinic. The clinic, the health clinic, is only controlled by the patients, and, the, and that's phenomenal. Then there's a purchasing co-op where a group of people or a group of businesses could come together and they buy what they need. There is a group that that could be farmers, farmers, artists, consumer purchasing alliance in D.C. is a group of charter schools and churches that came together and created a purchasing co-op. And they were able to get buy in volume and get better quality at a lower price. So that's a purchasing co-op. And the fourth one is marketing co-op, or they're called producer co-ops. And that could be its own and control. A group of people could come together. And farmers are the ones that use that a lot, like Cabot Creamery is owned by a group of farmers, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, Sunkissed. But there is a marketing purchasing co-op in, in Pittsburgh that I think you would like, uh, Dr. Ryder. It's called Ujama. I think Ujama is the fifth principal of Kwanzaa, yes. of Kwanzaa, fifth principal of Kwanzaa, and their name Ujama. It's a group of black women that came together, and they are all artists. Some make jewelry, paintings, clothing, and they they've got a storefront in Pittsburgh. You could go find them at uh, I think it's Ujama dot Co-op, but just Google Ujama in Pittsburgh. And that you can buy online this product. I went there one July three or four years ago, and I bought all of my Christmas gifts for all the ladies in my home, in my life. And I had only one complaint. 
the quality was excellent. My complaint was that the prices were too low. I said they may be good for Pittsburgh, but for D.C., New York, L.A., they were way too low for the quality. But it's a group of wonderful black women who've come together. Each individual artist could not have a storefront, but they can work there, market their goods, buy the products that they need collectively and get a lower price. So that's a phenomenal group of of, of folks that's doing a marketing Worker cooperative. <laughs> it fits all kinds of different ones. But those are your four types, and you're focusing in on worker co-ops. And why did you choose worker co-ops, particularly with this linguistic, uh, anthropology background, union, being uh, um, well, you, you, originally you were uh, auto mechanic. I don't know if that played into your how do you go to worker co-op. But how did you get into worker co-op? What's that like? Well, so I have been participated in cooperatives all of my adult life. I was a member of the Free Venice Food Conspiracy, which is a food buying group in Venice in the early 70s. I was a member of We Bruins, W-E-E as in small, We Bruins, which is a child care cooperative at the uh, UCLA student, Married Student Housing. It's no longer in existence, but a wonderful experience. Uh, again, women pulling together to take care of the needs. But what I finally discovered was, and so I've been involved with cooperatives of all sorts all of my life, but at a certain point when somebody pointed out to me that, and her name was Lynn Engelskirchen, by the way, pointed out to me, uh, she was doing her master's at Columbia on worker cooperatives, and she said to me that um, the worker cooperatives are different because we are the only ones that um, return the means of production to the worker. In other words, they solve the exploitative relationship of the worker. We're going to have to take our final break here already. Return the means of production to the worker. That's what I want to leave this segment with and, and take that back up. Return the means of production to the labor. And I, I want to get to what do you mean by that, return the means of production to labor. We'll be right back. We can take our final break. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. We have Dr. Elizabeth Ryder on the line with us this morning. She has gotten her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate from UCLA in linguistic anthropology. She's worked in the union world for around three decades. She's just retired and been spending time uh, child care for her daughter. But she learned about co-ops and a, and a food co-op in Venice, California, and a child care co-op at UCLA. So she was telling us about that worker co-ops returns the means of production to labor, and I just really want to know what that means. Uh, well, so there's an exploitative relationship. When you work for someone else, you produce something of value, and then that person, you know, whoever the business owner goes and sells that product, and they, they get a greater value, and they retain the value, you know, the difference between how much they paid you and what they sold it for, right? And that's where capital comes from. They, so that, and that's an exploitative relationship because you're not getting the full value of the work that you did. So in order to eradicate that, in order to get the full value of the work that you do, you have to eliminate that role of someone who's skimming off the top 
the way to do that is uh, work the cooperative, which is that everybody that works there owns exactly one share. Uh, they have one vote, and they um, they participate democratically, and everything is owned equally and decided democratically. That way, there's no you know person skimming off the the, the value off the top, uh, and um, everybody gets the equal the equal full share of their their work. So that's the design of a business that is non-exploitative. Uh, now, unfortunately, some uh, other types of cooperatives can still keep that exploitative relationship. Now, you take the example of an agricultural cooperative. You have the owners of the land that are marketing their product through a, a marketing cooperative, but what are they doing to their farm workers? They're being, the farm workers are still can be being exploited, and most often are. Uh, it's only when you convert that farm to a worker cooperative that it would have non-exploitative relationships. So they, what I commonly say is worker cooperatives solve the labor problem. It achieves 100% workplace democracy. The entire objective of the labor movement is to create workplace democracy. And through workplace democracy, the people have a voice at work, and they can advocate for fair wages, fair benefits, you know, health and safety standards, you know, uh, put in laws such as you know, child, eliminating child labor, whatever it is, get, achieving health care. This is how we, we do it. We get a voice at work. We get some, some modicum of democracy at our workplace. And um, we achieve these things through that democracy. But a workplace that has 100% workplace democracy is the goal of the labor movement, and that is worker cooperatives. So if we have an economy based on worker cooperatives, we will have uh, achieved the goal of the labor movement. So I, 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 I got what you say. There's an uh, organization called Democracy Collaborative, and they, they – uh, created a book called Cities Building Community Wealth. They gave an example of Christina, a Mexican-American who joined a worker cooperative. Before she joined the worker cooperative, she made $7 per hour in New York, and you, you cannot live on 7 bucks an hour in New York. Even two people at 7 bucks an hour, you can't live. But when she joined a worker cooperative, she went to 20 bucks an hour. If she worked 40 hours a week at 7 bucks an hour, then she grossed $280 a week. But at 14, at, at 20 bucks an hour, uh, she was at 800 bucks a week. And so what she did was she lowered the amount of hours that she was working so she could spend time with her two children. So that's the, the – she owns her own labor. She has choice in the matter now, and she can have a better quality of life being in a worker cooperative and a better quality family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I get it. That's why I want people to know about worker co-ops. Uh, and I like consumer co-ops. I hear what you're saying about the purchasing and marketing co-ops. If it's owned by businesses that also have this – exploitive relationship between the capital one that owns the business and the labor they can still very much exploit the labor from everything that you're talking about got it and we're talking about mainly worker cooperatives here and how to get more people involved in worker cooperatives. So you can have the experience that Christina had in these seven and a half years, all kinds of examples of people starting a worker cooperative or joining a worker cooperative and going from the seven bucks an hour to 20, 21, 28 bucks an hour. It, it's phenomenal how they can do that because do you know why, Elizabeth, why it goes up so high? Well, you know, you um, a, a capitalist, you know, uh, has you work eight hours a day, you produce something of a certain value, and they pay you, let's say, 80% of what the value of that is. The 20%, they skim off the top, 
And they, that is where capital comes from. That's where that income for the, the owner who does not do the work of producing the product, how they get their, you know, their wealth, right? Uh, and that is the nature of capitalism. So what we need to do is change that dynamic so that people have control over their labor power. And um, that's in the form of a worker cooperative. I, I, you know, I often ask myself, what would that look like? And what it looks like is a worker cooperative. Consumer cooperatives, you know, food cooperatives, very often, and I belong to a co-opportunity market in Santa Monica, you know, because that uh, was connected to the Freedom's Food Conspiracy. But being owned by the members, is the workers still don't have a say. And very often in these situations, even consumer cooperatives, they can be run just as corporate as any other business and without taking into consideration, you know, the decisions of the worker. So it's only the worker cooperative where the workers have 100% of the say. They have 100% workplace democracy. And that's what our goal is. So I've seen, I've heard of some, matter of fact, I interviewed a guy in Seattle who worked in a food co-op that was, I think it was 40% owned by the workers and 60% owned by the consumer. It could have been vice versa, right. but it was in hybrid. And I would love to go and see how that's working. They had just formed that to both have the benefits of the worker and the benefits of the consumer and how you merge those two together to hopefully have an even better environment, a better working situation. So tell me how this is. You're wanting worker co-ops, but what what are you doing in Los Angeles to create more worker co-ops? What do you have in your mind for creating more worker co-ops? Well, so, I mean, first of all, uh, I did, you know, a number of different things. But one of them was, of course, I wanted to go to the labor movement because not everybody in the labor movement really understands the dynamic of what a worker cooperative is and how it fulfills the goal of the labor movement. They're immersed in their own work and they haven't, you know, um, learned about these things. And so I, I've worked quite a bit in trying to create bridges between the worker cooperative community and the labor uh, community. So we founded uh, Los Angeles Union Cooperative Initiative, Lucy.coop, in order to you know, build these bridges between the worker cooperative movement and uh, the labor movement in Los Angeles. So this is a pilot program of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperative Union Council. I am the international uh, organization, uh, the Union Co-op Council of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. The website for that is unioncoops.org. Uh, and it's to nationally uh, create the bridges between the labor movement and um, the worker cooperative community. Uh, so that's one way to, you know, help this move along is that, you know, you have the people that are potentially your strongest advocates, uh, which is the labor movement, that are unaware of the benefits of the labor, of the worker cooperative model, and we want to make them aware. So, but then also I established uh, works, worker ownership resources and cooperative services, and we are uh, currently uh, doing a project with downtown Crenshaw. And our objective there is uh, Downtown Crenshaw is an organization in Los Angeles which is a has built a land trust, a community land trust, to uh, purchase um, residential and commercial property in South Central Los Angeles. It's an organization of, of the African-American community in that area to um, stop gentrification, stop pushing them out of their home, uh, in, which for decades and decades and decades in Los Angeles has been the cultural and spiritual center of the African-American community, and they're being pushed out right now by the um, sort of profiteering off of the L.A., you know, real estate market. And so we are, they are trying now to purchase the Crenshaw Mall, 
and uh, having not having a, a, a great um, experience with that because the developers, of course, are trying to resist that. They want uh, to convert all of that into very high-end, uh, in very expensive housing. Uh, but this community is attempting to purchase the Crenshaw Mall, and we will be working to create uh, worker cooperatives um, in the Crenshaw Mall and in the surrounding community that are owned and operated by the local community members. That's fascinating, and uh, I really wanted to spend more of this hour talking about that, but I got so engrossed in your history. <laughs> it's phenomenal that I'd like to have you come back on and talk more about what is what are the different types of co-ops that you're looking to create. So can we get you back on at another time to talk more about what's, what's going on? Certainly, but I want your, um, your listeners to please go to downtowncrenshaw.com and uh, go to the petition, uh, downtowncrenshaw.com forward slash petition, sign the petition. If you can get an organizational support letter written, please do and send it in to Downtown Crenshaw. Uh, donate to Downtown Crenshaw. This is a monumental effort of the African-American community in Los Angeles to survive. And we need to combat the racist and exploitative and profiteering of the uh, real estate industry in Los Angeles. Please <laughs> sign. <laughs> Go to downtowncrenshaw.com and sign up, please. We'll see you all next week and we'll have Dr. Ryder back on at another time. Live cooperatively. Thank you.